I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the second series of Read Like a Writer, the books podcast from Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Cannon Gate, three independent publishers. In each episode, we'll hear from a different author and learn about the books that are closest to their hearts, their latest projects and their local indie bookshop. It's hosted by me, Anna Fielding, and recorded remotely in line with current restrictions. Hello and welcome to Read Like a Writer. Uh, We are still recording from our homes for this series in line with the current pandemic restrictions. So once more, please forgive any random ambient sounds. Today I'm joined by Terry White and Terry is the editor-in-chief of Empire magazine and has edited several other magazines including uh, Time Out New York and Shortlist magazine which in the interest of full disclosure is where I first met her because I was working for a different title published by the same company. Last year Terry published a memoir Coming Undone and the paperback is out soon on April the 15th. Terry, hello. It's nice to see you. Hello. It's lovely to see you. We didn't get to work together for long enough, which I think I once drunkenly told you because I worked out very quickly you had impeccable taste in films, uh, records and books. I believe that was fairly mutual and we spent about half an hour hugging each other on a pavement in Bloomsbury (laughs) for that reason. (laughs) Uh, Good days. One of those evenings. (laughs) Um, but we are here to talk about what you're doing at the moment and what you've been doing over the last couple of years. So for those of people who won't be familiar with it, can you tell us a bit about Coming Undone? Uh, Coming Undone is, well, actually, it started off life as a memoir about my experience living in New York and specifically my experience of being sectioned when I was there inside a locked psychiatric ward in a hospital in Manhattan and um, that's how it started and then actually as I was writing it it became something else it became a book of two halves it was half that story about a kind of a mental collapse really I had in New York but then it also the other half of the book became um, the story of my early life I suppose Um, some of the more difficult things I experienced uh, domestic violence sexual abuse and and as I was writing it actually the thread between these two parts of my life became apparent so that the finished book is very much about the relationship between those two things in my life. You've already the hardback's been out since last year now um you've had a lot of responses from readers how's that made you feel? 
feels partly like an extraordinary responsibility, um, but also a massive, massive privilege to hear from so many people who want to tell me their stories, who want to say thank you for something they read in the book that's made them feel seen or supported or just a bit hopeful. Um, and it's funny because I never thought it was a hopeful book when I was writing it. And it ends kind of... It, I didn't want this uh, neatly wrapped up ending with, you know, the message that you survive all these things and you come out of it completely fine. And I hate, I kind of hate those false narratives because I don't think that's what real life is like. But it's interesting because lo loads of the people who've read it saw hope in there. And I went back and read it um, after, you know, a long time after I'd, I'd sent the final manuscript in. And I recognised that hope for the first time that I didn't even realise I was writing into the book. So, yeah, it's funny because it's become a two-way street where um, those people have shown me things about the book that I didn't even recognise. It's interesting that you say that, you know, because while you're in the process of doing things, you've mentioned a couple of disconnects, like the first one being that you weren't expecting to look at your childhood when writing about New York and then kind of going back and seeing that it was more hopeful. So what was your initial impetus? Why was it important for you to write this? So I started off writing uh, 50 word stories when I came out of the um, psychiatric ward. A friend of mine, you know, I was kind of, I'd come out of hospital. I was in AA at the time. Um, I was trying not to go out, which was hard because my job was editor-in-chief of Time Out New York, which was all about going out. And it was kind of a distraction thing, really. I'd always turned to writing for help when I'd been at my lowest points before. It'd always been a bit of a, a path to salvation for me, really. So it started off as that, and it, it morphed over the years. I wrote longer things. It, it, it grew out of those stories into something more long form. And then I just kept coming back to it, and I kept coming back to there being this story that I really wanted to tell. Um, and it became, it, it, it morphed as I wrote the book from being something, a story that I wanted to tell for probably entirely selfish reasons in terms of getting it out of me, exercising it from me and kind of getting it out into the world. And then I thought maybe there was a value in sharing these very, very dark, difficult things if that could even possibly help the girls who are still where I was when I was a kid. I would have felt incredibly differently, I think, as a child, had I seen anybody who'd been through a similar thing that I was going through kind of behind closed doors in secret and, and seen that person kind of having an, an OK life. So I think my motivations changed as well as I was writing the book. Um, I've also seen you say in other places, and it is a hard story to tell. I mean, both both time periods are difficult periods to talk about. Um, and I've seen you mention before that you were quite nervous about revealing so much, not just on a personal level, but on a professional one as well. Yeah, that was a massive thing. So I've struggled with mental illness ever since being a child, really, and with various, um, I suppose, outcomes of that. Um, so whether it was substance abuse, you know, drinking too much, taking prescription pills, self-harm, all of these things that were manifestations of my mental illness. But at the same time, I was kind of having this pretty great career, um, I was doing really well professionally. I was getting great jobs. A lot of them were quite high profile. 
And I became convinced that if people knew the truth and knew how ill I was in secret, that all of my professional work would be undone. My career was kind of my path out of, of the situation I was in at home. So it always been a place of safety for me, but it was also a place of hiding, really, because I didn't want anyone to know what was really going on. So it just felt essential for me that nobody found out what was happening, which became increasingly difficult, especially in New York when I was sectioned. You know, I had to tell my bosses something when I didn't turn up for work on Monday because I was in a psychiatric ward. Um, I got somebody in the office in the end to cover for me, my deputy. But it became, I think, increasingly untenable for me to pretend that these two parts of myself had nothing to do with the other. And how does it feel now that you've reconciled the two, now that you've spoken out? I mean, I still have to say I still get some feelings of shame that stick that stickiness of shame I don't think ever truly goes um and I have to fight that because I think it's massively unhealthy and I think it also is a bad example for other people if I'm speaking out but but feeling this level of shame as well so it's something I constantly battle with um so in in that sense it's still quite difficult but on the other hand Individually, I feel a lot more healthy as a person that I'm not trying to pretend to be these these different people. You know, this person at work, this person to my friends, this person to my boyfriend, this person in the dark when there's nobody else there apart from me, which was only the time that I was ever, I think, my true self. So actually being able to just be the, the complex, I suppose, multifaceted human being that we all are is something of a relief, I have to say. I thought that you might say that, actually. And I think actually, probably that's one of the reasons for me that the book felt hopeful, that I found hope in it, because it seemed like it was kind of several Terries coming together towards the end, which, I mean, admittedly, I'm coming from a position of having known you, but I think mm. for any reader, that is the thing that, you know, you start to see a woman find her way out of all of this. Um. Going on to a slightly different topic, although it is related, and we will cover kind of other themes in the book through your book choices as well. But, you know, you've, you've also done a lot of work professionally um, helping younger journalists come through to things. And journalism is still a profession. The social mobility and the social background of people, there are more people from private schools in journalism now than there were 10 years mm -hmm. ago, which is horrific because not many other industries are going that way. And, you know, as your memoir says, you, you're from a working class background in uh, the Midlands. I'm from the other side of the Midlands and not from a posh background either. I wondered how it felt to you, you know, talking about your class background in this as well. Class has always been really, really important to me and I think a really important part of my story because, you know, that there is a... When you come from a working-class background and your way out is through career, I think it, it, it changes you, but also you're still ultimately that same person inside. I'm still that working-class girl 
who, you know, had never met anyone from private school until I went to university. I was the first person in my family to go to university. Absolutely terrified of them. They were all incredibly posh, incredibly confident, knew, had just ease of the way they moved around the world, which I was anxious and terrified. And and I think that part of you never really changes. So even, you know, today I've been in, in journalism 21 years this year. I'm still, I think that part of me is still in there, that part of me that's a little bit terrified, that kind of, you know, feels like I'm not quite on a par with with middle class people from, you know, professional families. Um, And it hasn't got any better. You're completely right. It's got worse. And all of those ways in that there used to be, none of which were automatically great. I have to say, I came up being a secretary, being a PA for an editor, And that was often the way a lot of young women particularly came into the industry. There were no men in those jobs. The men were all straight in at junior writer. The women were all in as as PAs. And, you know, but those jobs don't exist anymore. And I look at it and I just think it's never been harder to, to get in. Even in this day and age, it's an industry that relies on work experience and unpaid work experience a lot of the time which means you know you've got to have somewhere to live you've got to have parents who'll be willing to pay for you it's the whole setup is is not is not there for any kind of social mobility and big systemic long-term change is really really difficult and and the bits and bobs that I've done I did mentoring um during the second lockdown I think I did 17 masterclasses um with other journalists we did a a different topic sometimes twice a week and that's just a tiny tiny kind of that's a stone the ripple from that is is not significant enough to make any any substantial change and I think the industry is still really geared towards um uh, middle class kids and then you get a media with no plurality of voice with the same people telling the same stories about the same people to the same audience it's kind of a bit depressing um but I think we all kind of have a responsibility to do whatever we can to shift that even in a way that feels small and insignificant do you think that you know you know you mentioned like the, the confidence that some people have um even from university onwards do you think that kind of anxiety contributes to sort of existing mental illness as well do you think that's true yeah I I definitely had a level of anxiety around class and around kind of you know I had no way of navigating that world I didn't know the first thing about it I'd never worked in an office before nobody in my family had worked in an office before just working out I remember trying to work out how to use the phone to transfer calls when I got my first job as the PA I had never used an office phone before. I didn't know how to transfer it. And um, Phil Hilton, who's um, somebody we both know and have worked for, he was the editor I was the PA for. And I just kept cutting off all these phone calls because I was so terrified of asking how to use the phone because I'd blagged it in the interview and said I'd be a great PA when actually I was always going to be a terrible PA. And I dared (laughs) say to him, I don't know how to use the transfer button on the phone. So, and that's a really small and stupid example, but that's the kind of thing where, you know, you can be really crippled by um, insecurity, by feelings of worthlessness. And I think the, the biggest challenge for working class kids is to feel that you have a right to a good career, that you have a right to a live in a nice house, you have a right to exist in parity with people 
other people who are from more privileged backgrounds. And that's always been the difficulty for me. And I think a lot of what has contributed to some of my mental health issues have been have certainly been, you know, the fear that that this life that I've suddenly got is going to get taken away from me. And there's a definitely an element of, of self-sabotage in that. And there definitely was in my past. Talking of kind of like fantastic lives that you worry might be taken away from you, you know, the initial thing you started writing your book about was your life in New York. Um, and there are some beautiful descriptions of New York. But, and you mentioned me talking about films and music earlier, for all of us who love fiction, who love song lyrics, who love films, we all have these fantasy ideas of places. Um, And, you know, you want to believe in the story of a place. I know from reading your book that for you, New York, it was, again, the disconnect between real Mm. New York with the subway smells and kind of... New York, you can make it there, make it anywhere. It ended up being more New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down. It certainly did. And it's, you know, it's the most cinematic city in the world. It just is. The skyscapes, you know, the steam coming out of the um, grates on the on the floor. You've got every single bit of the city looks like it's been built for film and for TV. I used to live in Soho for a while in this amazing loft apartment and... I used to feel like if I walked down the street and pushed on a wall of another building that it would collapse in because it was cardboard and it was like a set. Like, it felt like you were living in a film. And But there was this kind of, as you say, this disconnect between the city, which looked the part in every possible way, like you'd get goosebumps just walking down the street. Between that and the character of the city, which I found incredibly brutal, I found it incredibly harsh... Um, and I always thought of New York of having this immense soul, which I think is through the depictions in books and records and films. And for me, it always had heart and it always had soul. And it, that didn't translate for me when I was there. And I found it an incredibly difficult city to live in. It is incredibly brutal. And, and a lot of people can kind of mould themselves around that and can take that And I just kind of couldn't. And I think because I was in this worsening mental health crisis, it was the terrible combination of person and circumstance. It was probably the absolute wrong city at the absolute wrong time. And one of the things I also found interesting is that at the end, it's presented as your very definite choice to leave New York and come back to Britain, which, again, I think, you know, I don't know if this is something you spotted when you were reading it back, but um, it's the point where it's like this is you taking control of things. That was a decision made to be good to yourself. Yeah, and it it did, you know, I think I write in the book, it was was, um, I had to leave that version of myself behind and it was her or me and I decided to save myself because the version of me in New York was broken and just wasn't responding to the city well. And, and I think it would have always ended in disaster, really. So it was a definite choice. And it was really difficult because who leaves New York? Like all the narratives are about trying to get to New York, being desperate to make it. If you're lucky enough to get there, then kind of dominating the city. Those are the narratives we're used to hearing. So actually choosing to reject the city. You know, I think there was a when I quit and decided to come home, People were emailing me saying, 
but have you been fired really has they taken away your visa like why are you really coming home and because people find that really hard to to understand but it was definitely a choice I knew that if I didn't leave something worse would happen and I didn't see it as a place that I could become well so it definitely was a decision that I took and it was very it was really tricky because I thought I had an amazing job a really great job I was on good money you know and as somebody from a working class background that matters because that gives you a security you've never had and it it just felt in some ways it felt absolutely the right thing to do but on the other hand I had a little voice in my head going are you nuts like walking away from this um but you know five and a half years on it was absolutely the right thing to do and the only way really that I could save myself and I had to save myself in the end and are you happy with the version of yourself you've got now that's a big question (laughs) yeah it is I think we're all kind of I hate that phrase a work in progress but it's completely true like you know I feel better about myself at 41 and a half than I have done at any other point in my life I feel as I said earlier more kind of uh not complete not complete at all but the the parts the the disconnecting and the kind of contradictory seemingly parts of me have all been have all been reconciled and and I feel now that the person I put out into the world is the real person um which feels like a big achievement really and I know that mental health issues will always be part of my life and that dealing with the consequences of of that early trauma will also always be part of my life but now it feels like something I can live with as opposed to be completely obliterated by. We're going to talk a bit more about that because it does relate to some some of the books you want to talk about but um, with A Happier Life in London you've also chosen a happy local bookshop that you love very much which is West End Lane Books in Hampstead. Um, tell me why this has been your independent bookshop to choose. I mean, oh my God, anybody who's walked through the door of Western Lane will know exactly what I'm talking about. This is um, uh, the local bookshop in Hampstead. And it's the, as, as it always is with independent bookstores, it's the people and the vibes. The vibes are beautiful. So Danny, who works there, who if anybody on Twitter... Um, follows Western Lane Books they will know exactly who Danny is Kim the manager they are just beautiful generous souls um, love book. I know this sounds deaf because they work in a bookshop but love books more than anything else in the universe have the best recommendations when I go by and I'm in two minds about something they're just incredible human beings they were incredibly supportive over the book and have been incredibly supportive to a lot of other local authors but they're just brilliant brilliant and it's the one of the warmest bookshops or shops of any kind I've ever been in it's so warm and so welcoming and so gorgeous and if you live anywhere near Hampstead get your ass down there and buy a book I really hope that they uh, clip this audio and use it as an extremely (laughs) passionate endorsement somewhere on their social media. Um. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So, you know, in normal non-pandemic times when West End Lane books would have been open, we would have bought these books to have in the studio with us from them. Um, sadly, we're both sort of, you know, sat in different rooms in different parts of London. But we're going to move on to talking about your choices now. Um, and there's a new title that you wanted to talk about, which was Vanessa Spingora's Consent. Um, and this version in English was translated by Natasha Lura. It's about the relationship, the, the interaction, I suppose, that she had with the French writer Gabrielle Mansef when she was just 14. Um, why did you choose consent? So it's probably unsurprising given, you know, the, the content of my book um, and um, parts of my story that I'm very interested in non-fiction. I'm very interested in memoir and I'm specifically interested in memoir that it, that's about trauma, that's about kind of impact on the mind and body, um, that is quite bold in lots of ways. And I... I found this really interesting because, and I, I saw something with Vanessa where she said, you know, first and foremost, this is a work of literature. 
And it is, but there's something really interesting in the way she writes and the way she kind of tells her story, which is really forensic and cold almost. She's it reads it does read like literature, but it also almost reads like journalism. It's a really interesting, almost kind of objective account of what happened and she speaks very plainly very precisely and I quite enjoy that and the fact you know it's quite different to my mind is I I do a lot with imagery um some of it's quite obtuse deliberately but this is very clear very precise um and you know there's been real world impact on this book I think when these books really land like this one did when it was first published in France and people said oh you know this is the me too reckoning for the French literary circles and then when it was published here it's got people talking about about this which is you know you think there's an automatic paedophilia is bad having sex with children because she was 13 when she met him she was 14 when she started to have sex with him she was a child and you know but this he'd had the the author Gabriel as you said had a well-known history of of admitting to uh sexual relationships with minors as he called them but girls even published a pamphlet about it in the 1970s didn't he yeah called the under 16s and his taste was girls 10 to 16 also boys I believe and he wrote this pamphlet which was full of of observations about why he was attracted to children essentially so it's kind of shocking really that I think he was still being awarded prizes in 2013 which you know it isn't even 10 years ago so it's kind of extraordinary to me that this was ever accepted and that he was you know a really well regarded part of French literary society and I think what's really interesting is she there there is an element of and I I don't use this word lightly but there is an element of revenge and of her taking revenge on the page which I think is really fascinating the way she's taken and there's literariness is is really a big part of this book. There's letters um, that are exchanged. There's lots of kind of different kinds of writing in this book. And I really enjoyed the fact that she takes control by writing her story and his story as well, because it's it's both of those. And she, you know, really kind of digs into her point of view when she was 14 how ill-equipped she was to even deal with a relationship with a man of 50 how she was confused by his advances her dad leaving her dad being absent largely for her childhood and why that left her vulnerable um to his advances it's a really kind of well-reasoned as i say scientific precise account and i think it's i think it's an incredibly important book this element again of taking control of something retroactively she initially does blame herself and she said uh, at one point the guilty party was me i was the dropout the slut the good time girl the paedophile's accomplice um and these are also kind of emotions that are common to people who've been sexually abused and they're also something you mention as well yeah because I think when you're when you are still a child and she kind of is very honest about the fact it essentially took three decades for her to kind of see that she wasn't at fault and I think it's it's natural and kind of inevitable when you're not yet an adult 
And I remember, I, I think I write in the book that it happened to, I was abused by two different men. And I, I wrote kind of, what was I putting out there? What was it about me that was making this happen to me? Because I thought, well, once, you know, I can kind of explain twice. And obviously now I'm older and, and I know a bit more about how um, grooming works and how sexual abuse works. Once you've been abused, once you are actually kind of more likely to be preyed upon by a predator who will exploit the fact that you have already been abused once. And I think that's it's a really understandable way to try and deal with trauma is to make yourself culpable because that almost feels like being in control a certain way because the alternative that you've just been victimised is incredibly difficult to accept and I think as women and young girls we are trained from a very young age to constantly analyze our role and our responsibility in everything you know you look at it in the language around um, women's safety and, and violence against women at the moment and all of the conversations about don't go out after dark don't wear your headphones it's always centering on kind of the the fault of women and the fault of young girls and I think that's on things like victim blaming right down to the fact that we internalize what happens to us and often blame ourselves and turn that hatred in on ourselves as opposed to directing it out to to where it belongs I think you're absolutely right and it also kind of ties in with another one of your choices which you have brilliantly described as a book to change the world which is Selva Amalda's Dead Girls um, which is about three young women who were murdered in the 1980s in Argentina and again it's kind of approached in a, uh, a journalistic fashion. I read that she did three years of research on it before mm. then sitting down and writing it in three months which is incredible um, but I wanted to know why why is this one why is this the one the book to change the world she just but through these through these three girls who you know non they their assailants were never brought to justice but through these three stories she manages to tell the story for me of gendered violence almost in its totality which i think is just radical to be able to do that the way she writes and she, i think she calls it journalistic fiction which i find fascinating as a <laughs> as a description but it is this it is very much like In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, which it, which it has been compared to before, in that it has elements of being almost like a thriller. And thrillers, we've got to remember, women in thrillers always get kind of raped and murdered. But, you know, often it's done in a titillating way. Often there's no element of, of true justice. The way she uses the kind of conventions of thrillers and of, of mystery... But also then there's this lyricism in it and also this this real sense of journalistic storytelling as well. It's a fascinating blend of all of those things. And it does, just through these three women who she humanises so brilliantly, but also, I think really importantly, she, she tells the story of, of the void and the pain and the devastation that is left in the wake of their deaths, because often that's where the screen cuts black after the, the woman is murdered, whereas this actually really spends time with the consequences of these women being brutalised. So I just think this is, you know, it's not an easy read. 
has has this in common with a lot of the things that um that we'll be talking about but i think it's i think it's vital and if anybody wanted to understand the kind of how gendered violence happens its consequences this is this is the book to do that completely i thought it was interesting actually as well you know you mentioning thrillers because in thrillers female lives female bodies they're so disposable Mm -hmm. and I think you know what's really interesting about dead girls is it kind of examines that machismo in society not just Argentinian society society Mm. in general um and kind of it says why in real life are those lives disposable why are those three young girls which are Andrea Maria Luisa and Sarita why are they why are they treated as less yeah, and, and sh- they lean into the kind of quite harsh description of how they are treated as disposable. Some of the things the men say, some of the ways that they're actually disposed of, it's very clear in the book that these women's bod- bodies are treated as nothing, that them, their bodies, it's just discarded. And that it, that really, really comes across in the way she tells the story and it's and that's part of what makes it difficult to read because you you hear the the kind of way they're dismissed even in even after death they're dismissed as unimportant as you know not even significant in any way apart from to their families but th- that sense of of this society and the culture in which that exists is really well drawn because you understand how they've got to this position and how both those men are created and made and how the women suffer the consequences of that. Um, We're going to go on to your third pick now, um, which is different again and is by a writer I absolutely love, which is Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. Um, And this is one you describe as the first book you really loved as an adult. When did you first read it? Well, so... um, I read it when I was 17, the summer before I went to university. And that summer was a great summer because um, I was working in a a cardboard factory. That wasn't the good bit, I have to say. I was doing, you know, the um, talcum powder tubes. I was putting the tube and the lid on the conveyor belt so that the machine could push it in. But Edna, who ran the night shift, said I was rubbish. Um, But I did that every day to save money for university. And when I wasn't, I was reading because I had my very first boyfriend. His parents were teachers and they lived in the posh Barrett houses at the top of the hill. And he was pretty much one of the first middle class people I'd ever met. And they were just incredibly voracious readers, like absolutely loved books. And I'd loved books since being a little girl. And when I met him, I actually think I fell in love with his parents more than I fell in (laughs) love with him because they were just amazing. And they had all of the books there hadn't been many books in our house growing up and but they had all of the books and they introduced me to Toni Morrison that summer and I started with Song of Solomon and I read everything she'd ever written in that summer her and Michael Cunningham they introduced me to both of whom I still deeply love but I just remember how I felt reading Song of Solomon, which was, you know, and I'd read, I'd done English literature at um, A-level, so I'd read great works, but I'd never had the sense of reading a masterpiece. And that is a masterpiece of storytelling, of voice, of craft. I mean, as a writer, to read 
Tony Morrison's words committed to paper is an absolute honour. The way it completely reimagines the coming-of-age story, I mean, it's seemingly complex on one hand with magical realism and mythology and ghost story and folklore, but then also at its heart, it's just the story of a family and their history and what history does to its future. That's that's kind of all it is at the heart of it. And it's just, I think it's, I honestly think it's a perfect book, everything about it, every single word. Um, and that for me just, I was going to do English literature at university and just to fall that deeply in love with an author, which I think was the first time that had really happened, was a transformational, transcendent experience for me. Um, and I've always, you know, I go back to Song of Solomon probably once a year. I can never quite recapture that feeling I had. It's like when the first time you get drunk um, and you, you're always chasing that same feeling again. Um, but I still I still find reading her a magical, magical experience. That is the loveliest description of kind of that perfect high of like falling in love with a book and a writer. And yes. I think so many people, it happens the summer they were 17 or 18 as well. There's mm-hmm. just this kind of idea of this time that you have to sit around and read and discover. And you've got enough adult tools to kind of appreciate what you're getting as yeah. well. Yeah. And you, and you know, it's like, and you don't know at the time, you don't know how lucky you are and kind of, it's a, it's such a tender, delicate age and that precipice you're talking about where you're kind of still a kid in lots of ways, but you have developed an intellect and a reason that is, is more adult and you stand on the edge of it and it makes, I just think it's the perfect age to really fall in love with literature and read certain books for the first time. God, I want to be 17 again. I know. Apart from the, fact, apart from the cardboard tube factory. <laughs> You've also chosen a collection of poems, which is Ted Hughes's Crow. Uh, you know, you've mentioned that quite a few of the ones you've chosen are difficult reads, and I think this is probably Hughes's hardest to, to grapple with and to digest collection of poetry. Um, what is it that makes you love it so much? I mean, I hate to say it, but it is, you know, it's the darkness. It's so, I mean, it is also funny. I think I always forget that. And whenever I go back and revisit it, I'm always reminded of the humour, but it is sinister as all hell. It it reminds me of a horror film, but in poetry, if you see what I mean. Um, and there just, are these you know, kind that, of sinister looming craze yeah. through everything, aren't they? Like kind of horrible mythological beasts yes. coming down. And, you know, just that underlying thrum of sadness and grief um and melancholy is is i think incredibly powerful and it's interesting because there's obviously quite a few different versions of it because it was printed originally and then a reprint um a few years later with seven more poems and then a a year after that another edition with three more some were removed from later versions so i actually love the fact that these these different iterations of it and it's continued to evolve and I think it's no surprise that it was completed in pain because he began it after the death of Sylvia Plath. And when he was in the final third of it, I think, um, Aisha Wyville and his daughter both died also by suicide, well, and murder. And, you know, originally 
I, I read a thing on the Ted Hughes Society that said originally it was meant to be this epic folk tale with poetic verses um, interspersed with the narrative, but that he just felt unable to finish it after their deaths. And it is dedicated to the two of them. And so instead it became this selection of poems. Um, and that sense of it being not unfinished, but being kind of roughly hewn, and it not being entirely polished and poems being taken in and taken out, that kind of works for me because there's a rawness and a, a visceral energy to Crow that I love and I have a different experience every time I read it. When I've read it at different times, it's meant different things to me. So after I've become a mum, it means other things entirely to me I have a really different experience reading it than I did before so for me it's an ever-evolving piece of work that constantly changes for me depending on how my life has changed as well and I think it's it's not perfect like I think Song of Solomon is perfect as a piece of work this for me is a living breathing amazing piece of work that is perfect in its lack of perfection and your final choice, um, which is, you said, another book that you always go back to, interests me because you've picked Sylvia Plath and you don't often get people who go for both Hughes and Plath. Uh, it's yeah. almost seen like you have to have to be Team Sylvia, Team Ted. You have to choose a gang. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up... Well, I, I was into Sylvia first, um, as is often the case. She but is, I, you uh, know, I... Yeah. I adore Ted Hughes's poetry. He's my favourite poet, and Crow is my favourite book of any of any book. But the Bell Jar is the one I come back to most often. And I almost, do you know what? When I was sending you the choices, I think I put on my email. I was like, I know in capital letters because there is always the thing about the mentally unwell girl really liking the Bell Jar. That kind of trope. Um, but by the same token, it's it's always I've always found it helped me navigate my mental health difficulties. And actually, not a lot of books do that. I find comfort in books. I find escape in books, but I don't look for a help or salvation in them. But actually, The Bell Jar has always been something for me, which has, has helped me navigate my own to the point where when I was in the psychiatric ward in New York, and I write about this in the book. There was a bookshelf in the TV room or the TV corner, should I say. And the books were terrible, like genuinely rubbish. And I thought, oh, it's probably because, you know, they have to really filter the kind of reading material they're giving to people who are seriously mentally unwell. Until I spotted the bell jar. And I was like, that's either genius or it somehow got through the net. Um, so... I saw a copy of The Bell Jar and it was like it had kind of been delivered there just for me. And I, when I checked in, not checked in, it's not a hotel, when I'd been admitted to the psych ward, they'd taken all of my belongings. I was only allowed a notebook and a pencil, not even a pen, because I could harm myself with a pen. No phone, no computer, no nothing, completely cut off from the world. And I... Oh, I read constantly. I go from one book to the next. I'm, I'm never not reading. And it was the first time in my life I was not able to read. And so I was contemplating the poor books on the shelf. And then when I saw The Bell Jar, it was literally like a gift from God. And I, I grabbed it off the, the shelf. I can hear the sort of hallelujah and the shaft of light in the background. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, and I and I grabbed it and I carried it around with me, and I read it in two days and then read it over and over and over again. Um, and it was, you know, it's no it's no cliche to say that it was really, really helpful for me when I was in an incredibly frightening situation in a locked ward, three and a half thousand miles away from home, no sense of when I was getting out scary system that I had no clue how to navigate as a Brit as somebody who'd never even really used her health insurance properly um and it you know I didn't let it out of my grasp for the two weeks I was in hospital um so it's weird because it is always the book I I do go back to and apparently when I can't get to it it's still somehow delivered to me how did it feel actually you know you you said that you find different things when you go back and reread them, which is true of all of us. What did you get from the bell jar rereading it in, in an extremely situation to Esther Greenwood's? It kind of made it feel more normal somehow. Um because you know, some parts of the bell jar, you know, the moment when she climbs inside the wall, you know, that that may seem like an extreme thing, but I just overdosed on pills and booze in a not dissimilar way and ended up in a hospital and I used to read the passages about ECT um at the time I wasn't sure whether I was going to have to have it because the hospital that I was in um was using ECT a lot including on some of the other patients in the ward um they were a big advocate for it when a lot of other hospitals don't use it any longer so in some ways it kind of weirdly normalized my situation which in so many respects was extreme and incredibly unnatural but it gave me some kind of context and touchstone and it and it, it made me feel like actually it could end up being okay once I get out of here which you did and I'm very glad because uh one I'm, well, I'm glad on a personal level but uh also so that you could be here with us today as well Terry thank you so much for sharing everything with us your choices and your experiences um, we have one last thing from you, which is a reading from the audiobook version of Coming Undone. In my right hand is a transparent bag holding my clothes, basic toiletries, and loose items of makeup. I step towards the automatic doors, which, sensing the movement, open with a whoosh. Curtains announcing the matinee performance. I move forwards one small step, a second, and I'm through them out on the street. I stand entirely still, close my eyes, breathe in, hold for two beats, and then open my eyes wide and allow the world outside in. Beep! Beep! A yellow cab speeds past, horn blaring at a weaving cyclist who narrowly misses bouncing off its front bumper. A woman in a beige woolen skirt suit with a thin pink trim Short, rigid curls and a face-worn tight bends down to scoop up her small white dog's neatly laid shit with a tinted plastic bag turned inside out and worn over her fingers and thumb. The bag might be scented. Probably is, but I can't isolate and identify that smell over the other smells riding on top of each other, vying for attention. The odours of an average New York City street on an average spring day. Garbage. Coffee. Noodles, piss, hot dogs, burnt sugar, beer, bagels. Sweet, bitter, soft, strong and sharp. 
the smells that become tastes when they travel up into your nose and down through your throat. The grey, uneven patchwork pavement shakes, sizzles and bakes beneath my feet. I look from left to right, down at the concrete and up at the sky, or what's visible of it between the towering buildings on this block. Wisps of white clouds scatter across an otherwise blemish-free blue sky. The sun blazes, burns bright. Tucked under my left arm are the flowers I was sent with love five days ago by one of the handful of people who know the truth about where I've been. I had insisted on carrying them out with me, hand tight around the base of the basket, even though the flowers, the yellow and white daisies that had brought sunshine into the green ward, died yesterday. The heads are bowed and broken and brown, the soil flaky and cracked. I pull them closer. I flag a taxi with the hand holding the bag, my belongings held aloft and bared. I step down off the curb, open the door, climb in the back, and just like that, I slide back into my old life. Avenue D and 3rd, I say to the driver. I'm going back to my apartment in the East Village. My corner was once one of the very worst corners, the darkest corner of Manhattan's drugs and crime-controlled no-go area. It's now home to people like me, who push rental prices up and up, encouraging a Starbucks to open just two and a half blocks away. Arriving home, I check my mailbox, which is overflowing, walk up the three flights of stairs and open the grey front door to my apartment, expecting resistance on the other side. Thirteen days ago, it was a wreck. More specifically, the wreckage of a life in bits. The sink was stacked with dirty dishes, the worktops covered with takeout cartons and empty bottles. In the living room, a carpet of crunched up beer cans, wine bottles rolling on their sides, the prongs of plastic forks sticking in my foot every time I tiptoed to the bathroom, which was covered in damp towels, dirty clothes. In the bedroom, there were more discarded clothes, twisted stained sheets, fallen single shoes and bobby pins scattered like tiny traps across the bed and floor. I feel both a rush of gratitude and a wave of shame crash into my chest as I walk into a transformed apartment. I don't allow myself to think of my friend's reaction when she came in, the door proving unyielding at first after I gave her my keys to pick up some clothes. The message she will inevitably have shared, flying from Manhattan to Brooklyn and back again. Did you all know about the mess? About how bad things were? Should we clean it? She can't return to that, surely. I picture her picking up the discarded pills one by one. The survivors that were last seen falling from my mouth, sticking underfoot and skidding into dark corners. The breadcrumb trail that didn't lead me out of the woods but was proof that I had been deep, deep in there, lost amongst the trees. I dropped my bag by the door, put my dead flowers down on the desk. A curled, crisp leaf lands by my feet. I look out of the window, hear sirens ringing out on the streets below. I become cold with fear, unable to move. Are they coming for me? And once again, thank you very much to Terry. Bye. Uh, lovely to see you. <laughs> Thank you, Anna. And Terry White's Coming Undone will be published in paperback on April the 15th, um, priced at 9 99 by Canongate Books. 
bookshops will be open then. So uh, I recommend you go into your local one and buy a copy. Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canongate Books and was presented by me, Anna Fielding. To get a full list of what this week's author recommended, visit acast.com forward slash Read Like a Writer. And we'd love to hear what you think too, so you can tweet us at Read Like a Pod. 